0: It is good to see you. It is good to see you. Uh, First weekend after Thanksgiving. And uh, those of you who are worshiping with us from uh, Kentwood Campus, East Paris, Knapp Street, uh, so grateful that we get to be together for part two of this uh, pre Christmas series. It's called Invitation to the Feast. Also, uh, welcome to those of you who join us uh, online uh, week after week. Uh, Before we jump into part two, I want to give you a heads up for a very important season that we're moving into. Listen, Christmas, believe it or not, is less than uh, one month away, less than uh, 30 days away. And uh, I want to alert you to something we call just a Christmas offering. And uh, while we have increased giving throughout the month of December, we like to laser in on one particular weekend kind of as a focus point. And that weekend that we've selected this year is the weekend of December 17 and 18. Now, those of you who are newer with us, let me break this down uh, just a little bit for you. Uh, Ada Bible Church is we enjoy being financially healthy. But one of the things that has made us financially healthy over the years is that over the years, the family of Ada Bible Church has given incredibly during the month of December. It is disproportionately large in relationship to the rest of the year. What I'm saying is is that Christmas giving or December giving, it doesn't only help December, it really helps financial health throughout the year. And so those of you who are newer with us, what we do is we ask anyone connected to the Ada Bible Church family, just to give a gift uh, that is kind of above and beyond whatever they would normally do on a normal month. So kind of think in terms of kind of an over-the-top type gift during the month of December. And again, we're lasering in on that one weekend, but we know that people give generously throughout throughout the month. So I'll just thank you uh, in advance for what we plan on doing in December. Each December, we also pick an organization outside of Ada Bible Church, a ministry that we have the ability to bless from our Christmas giving. And the ministry that we've selected this year, I'll just show you the logo here. It's just called Multiplication Network. Multiplication Network. Now, chances are you've never heard of this ministry before, but they really do some amazing work. They're located just down the road in zealand michigan but they have church planting training hubs around the world i'm going to show you one picture here this picture is the church planting training hub in tanzania africa uh, uh, east africa D- does that does that look impressive to you a couple dozen people sitting on plastic folding chairs does that look impressive to you my friends that's incredibly impressive Out of that training hub in Tanzania last year, this year they have launched over 2,300 church plants out of that training center, Uh, around East Africa. People have come into this training hub from uh, like uh, Kenya, uh, Ethiopia, uh, South Sudan, Uganda, and sometimes they send trainers out to these various countries. Over 800 of these church plants have been just in the country of Tanzania. They have a system down, and the reason they've been able to launch that many new churches, and these churches are not, not, not huge, think, 25 people to 50 people, uh, neighborhood churches, churches that meet on a, a housing block in a city or perhaps in a village, like 25 to 50. But the reason they've been able to launch that many churches is that they don't just train church planters, they train trainers to train trainers For church planning. And so they've got a great system down, and that particular hub, the one in Tanzania, is the one that we desire to give a very generous gift to for their work in starting uh, hundreds and thousands of churches over the course of this next year. So that is our Christmas project this year out of our Christmas giving. And again, I just wanna thank you in advance. Just this is a congregation that just seems to step up to every significant challenge. And I'll just thank you in advance for the the giving that we do in the month of December. And so uh, now let me turn the corner and uh, roll into part two of this series, uh, Invitation to the Feast. And let me just begin with Thanksgiving Day. Thanksgiving Day. Days ago, uh, I I had uh, two Thanksgiving meals. One was a brunch in the morning with extended family, kind of like the big Thanksgiving brothers in the area, my folks, nieces, nephews, like 40 of us. But then in the afternoon, it was the smaller group, but for us, smaller meant 12, 13 people, uh, kids and grandkids. And something happened on Thanksgiving Day that's just incredibly common, and that is that a couple of our grandkids ditched us. I mean, a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. It started, we were outside, and a couple neighborhood kids ran over, uh, uh, about the same ages as my grandkids, and then two of our grandkids, a six-year-old and eight-year-old, disappeared to the neighbor's house. You know, they go over uh, to to play Legos. And so they're over at the neighbor's house, and then after a while, the dad who lived next door, where our grandkids were playing, he migrated over to our house and hung out and chilled with us for a little bit. So there's this kind of back and forth uh, taking place. And what happened on Thanksgiving is nothing in comparison to what happens on like the 4th of July where we have kids and grandkids over and it's like four consecutive houses that do this 4th of July thing. And so three or four houses that are connected. And so parents and kids, they appear and they disappear and they reappear throughout the course of the day as they migrate between houses and backyards. Understanding this scenario where people emerge and disappear and reappear helps me appreciate and understand how Mary and Joseph lost Jesus. They did. He wasn't a toddler. He was 12. And they lost track of him for an entire day. Did you know this? other than like baby Jesus born in a manger and then the wise men come and then he's an adult teaching, this is the only childhood story we have of Jesus. It's the day that Mary and Joseph lost track of him. Not only did they lose track of him for a day, but when they figure out his missing, it takes them three days to find him, which could not have been comfortable. We had one job, raise the son of God, the future Messiah, and we lose him (laughs) for three days. And the reason they lost him was because they were on a road trip. They were on a road trip. Now, some of you are familiar with this story where Mary and Joseph lose track of Jesus for about three days, but do you know Do you know when that event took place, when Jesus was 12? Do you know what the occasion was? Do you know what the road trip was? Here's a cycle of the major feasts of Israel, three major pilgrimage feasts where people had the habit of migrating to the city of Jerusalem for a major feast. They're called Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. One is spring, one is on the verge of spring and summer, and one is a fall festival. The event where Jesus gets separated from his parents for three days is Passover. The road trip they're on, they have traveled to Jerusalem for Passover, and now they are returning home to Nazareth. That's when they lose track of Jesus, and so uh, of these three major feasts in our uh, series, invitation to the feast. Today, I get to talk about Passover. Next weekend, Pastor Aaron Bewer is going to talk about the feast of Pentecost, and then I come back and talk about the feast of Tabernacle. So we're going to kind of do a deeper dive on each of these three feasts. And what I'm hoping for you today, what I'm hoping for you today, is that when we end our conversation about Passover. I hope that there's just this moment where when the service ends, you're kind of glued to your seat for just a couple seconds and you just kind of go, wow. I hope that what happens in your spirit today is that you have an elevated sense of awe and that you have an elevated sense of awe, of wow for the welcoming hand of the rescuing God. An elevated sense of awe for the welcoming hand of the rescuing God unfolded today's story with four elements of the Passover festival, four elements. Element number one just has to do with traveling together. Element number one is just uh, traveling together. Now, let's start with that story where Jesus gets separated from his parents when he's a a seventh grader, in our words. He's like 12 years old. Uh, there's a picture here, artist's uh, rendition of the city of Jerusalem, what they believe it would have looked like back in the days. It was a livable city. People worked there, uh, awnings, uh, tents set up in the streets, you know, awnings to protect you from the Mediterranean sun, that, that uh, structure at the very top of the picture, that is the great temple of Jerusalem, which factors into our story today. This... Is where Jesus and his family have visited for the feast of Passover when he's twelve years old. And in, in Luke chapter two, we find these words, simply says, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the for the what? For the festival of Passover. That's when they lose track of Jesus. Every check that out, every year. Every year, Mary and Joseph traveling south to Jerusalem for this festival of Passover. What this means is that Jesus was probably in the city of Jerusalem celebrating Passover with his parents when he's a six-year-old, when he's a nine-year-old, when he's 10, 11, 12, 14, year after year after year, Jesus' family made this pilgrimage down into Jerusalem for the Passover. And there was a little bit of Distance uh, to cover here. Uh, Just a a map showing you where Jesus lived and where Jerusalem is. Uh, That dot in the north, that's like where Nazareth is, where Jesus is raised. Uh, Jerusalem, the dot in the south. Now, as the crow flies, I think that's like 60 miles. But the route that you would actually have to walk in order to get there is closer to 100. You're hoofing it like 100 miles in order to get down to Jerusalem for this festival. So if you're going to, do this every single year. This was a major event. This was a major outing. It's like your your year revolved around making this trip to Passover. So they come down to Jerusalem, they spend the week celebrating the Passover festival, and then they're heading north, and that's where they lose track of Jesus. Because when Mary and Joseph head north, Jesus stays in town, but they don't know it. And they don't know it until the end of the day. Uh, Luke 2 continues, where it just says, thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for, like they travel on for a whole day. What, did they cover like 15 or 20 miles? Then they began looking for him among who? Among, help me here, among who? Among their relatives and friends. That's how you lose track of someone. Don't imagine Mary and Joseph and Jesus traveling down alone. Imagine them in a larger group, of cousins, aunts, uncles, other people from the village of Nazareth, friends that they pick up along the way, extended relatives that they pick up along the way, but it's not like they're like traveling in this tight cohesive huddle together. As a group travels, it tends to spread out. Inevitably, you get people that travel a little faster and people that travel a little slower. And so the idea is, okay, you all know where we're going to end up tonight. We're going to end up in this village where we're going to camp out, or there's this orchard, this orchard where year after year, we know the people, we camp out in this orchard. And so you have a destination, but then the group spreads out. And Jesus, a responsible 12-year-old, Mary and Joseph, particularly if they had younger children to tend to, they lose track of Jesus and it doesn't bother them. He's with the cousins, he's with other family members because it's a type of setup where kids would appear, disappear and reappear throughout the course of the day. But here you come to the end of the evening where it's time to regroup and he go, I thought he was with you, I thought he was with you. He's not with us, you haven't seen him all day and Mary and Joseph head back to the city of Jerusalem, I believe in a little bit of a panic and they don't find him. And it takes like them three days to find him. And finally, when they locate their son, uh, he's in this place right here. He's in the courtyards of the temple up on the hill. And when they find him, here's Jesus, a 12-year-old, asking the elders of the city, asking the religious elite of Jerusalem questions and interacting with them. And the crowd is watching this kid interact on an adult level uh, about weighty issues and great questions and mary and joseph they walk up you know joseph is a carpenter from nazareth and there's a 12 year old and he's like interacting with these religious leaders and mary she's kind of unglued she's like you have worried us sick and jesus looks at her and he says something like didn't you know that i had to be in my father's house Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? And already as a 12-year-old, it's like Jesus is saying, I know who I am. I know who I am. So while we really feel for Mary and Joseph in losing track of Jesus for three days, we envy the type of setup and the type of scenario where there's trusted company where you could lose a kid for four or five hours and not worry about it because they're traveling together. They're traveling together with cousins, relatives, friends, family. Remember, they were looking for Jesus among their relatives and their friends. It's this mingling of their friend group and their family where it's almost like, Their friends are extended family, and their family is an extension of their friend group, and there's something about just seeing that scenario where your kid is running ahead with the cousins and other friends in the village, and there are a number of adults keeping track of the kids that makes us hunger for something and long for something. My friends, from a sociological standpoint, we do right now live in one of the most disconnected, isolated lonely cultures the world has ever seen. And all indications are, and all this important studies seem to show that our phones are not helping. The the very device that can connect us to the world, that can connect us to friends, seems to be adding to more isolation, more disconnectedness, and more loneliness. We live as one of the most disconnected, lonely, isolated cultures the world has ever known. If there's, from this point, if there's one thing I want you to walk away with, it's just this sentence. It's time to regroup. Can I say that again? It's time to regroup. One of my uh, favorite places in my world. I've, I've traveled quite a bit, but if I had to say, what is your favorite place on the planet? My favorite place on the planet is feet away from my back door. It's this spot here. It's a fire pit in the corner of our yard where numerous evenings over the course of the spring, summer, and fall, it's a gathering space, sometimes for deep conversations, sometimes for light conversations, sometimes for friends trying to wrestle down a complicated issue more often just as a place to introduce new friends to old friends or to gather with family or with neighbors or with friends, people we haven't seen for a while, number of evenings a year I'm out there with other pastors, hanging out, how are you doing, how are you doing, how's it going, what are you thinking? It's a gathering space, and that fire pit happens to be an unrushed gathering space. There's just something that says nobody has to leave real soon, nobody has to go anywhere, conversations that can run long into the evening that's one of the gathering spaces in my life, but we all need them. So I'm going right now, dude, thanks a lot. I live in an apartment, I don't have a backyard or my condo development does not allow fires. <laughs> one of the things I'm grateful for are the atrium spaces at each of our campuses. I think it's one of the best investments Ada Bible Church has ever made in spacious gathering space. And before and after services, I will see not just random people, but often bunches of people, groups of people that seemed to find each other at least for a few minutes, week after week, sometimes family, sometimes friends, sometimes combination of both. I am just so grateful that as we exit a service, there's space to bunch and gather because we live in a culture that is disconnected, isolated, and lonely. And it just gives us a weekly opportunity to touch base with some people in our lives. I am so grateful for those bunches that we see week after week in our atriums. It, it, it's not just a church building. I you walk into a coffee shop some morning and I look over and there's four or five women and they all have the same notebook in front of them or a few dudes and they've got the same study in front of some Bibles open. I go, okay, that's obviously a small group from somewhere that seems to have a habit of gathering every Friday morning, every Tuesday afternoon for the purpose of having a significant conversation, staying in contact with uh, each other. My friends, it's time to regroup. I think the reason that we look into this Jesus story where he gets separated from his parents and they're traveling as a group and it's the kind of space where you could lose a kid for several hours, a mature child in trusted company and not pay attention to it, there's something in our hearts that hunger. I think God created us to need each other And if over the last few years you say, you know, I used to have a group and now I don't have a group. I used to have people and right now I really don't have people. I just want to challenge you to get creative and go, it's time to have people once again. God did not create us for isolation. He created us to travel together. Element number one of Passover, traveling together. You go, dude, well, that's kind of like how they got there, but that doesn't tell us what Passover was. Okay. Element number two. Passover is a celebration of new life. Element number two, new life. Now that cycle of the Jewish festivals, the three major festivals, uh, you saw the seasons there, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And Passover takes place during what season of the year? Passover takes place in the, in the spring. That's why it was a celebration of new life. Winter is finally gone. The first crops are being harvested around the time of this spring festival. Uh, The new life that was celebrated in Passover, largely two things, and they're represented here with pictures, one is the barley harvest and the other, it was also like lambing season, when lambs and goats would be born. And so you get to this part of the spring, two things are happening, winter is receding, Spring is now coming and you're now harvesting barley and it's also the time where your flocks are multiplying. It's a celebration of new life. You travel to Jerusalem and you give thanks for new life. Now this waiting through winter for spring to come, I don't think they get this in Hawaii. But we get it here. Those of us who live in West Michigan, we understand the new life of spring. I mean, you get through the winter, right, it's colder. The days, it gets dark at what? Like 3.15 in the afternoon. (laughs) And the trees are just bare and it's just this lifeless winter. And then you hit that spot sometime in in March or April. the days begin to lengthen. The temperatures begin to rise. You see those first buds on the trees and over a matter of weeks, there's this explosion of green. And we in West Michigan intuitively know that something in us (laughs) comes back to life as winter recedes and as spring springs upon us, give thanks for a new life. I don't know if any of us are going to remember this in April, but in April, when those trees are like exploding into green color, give thanks for new life. It's not just the natural world around us—the trees and the crocuses that shoot through the ground and whatever. I mean, I've seen. Listen, someone someone walks into a campus with a little tiny, you know, car carrier handle seat. I don't know what those are called. Uh, with a with a tiny baby in it, a two-week-old baby, and it's like a magnet for other people, you know. Give thanks for that new life. Some of you this year have new babies born into your family, a child, a grandchild, a niece, a nephew, a child to friends of yours. Man, just give thanks for new life. It's not just physical life, it's spiritual life. Every baptism service, we, my friends, are giving thanks for new life. A soundtrack that could play behind any baptism service is the song from Amazing Grace. I once was lost, and now I'm found. It's giving thanks for a new life. The Apostle Paul, in writing to a Jesus community in the city of Corinth in Greece, he worded it this way. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the, the what? The, the new creation has come. The new creation has come. If anyone, he just didn't say if anyone is in church, he says is in Christ. It's getting connected to the life of Jesus. It's like you get united with Christ. If anyone is in Christ, maybe it's like the new creation has come. Give thanks for new life. If anyone in your world, and maybe it's you, breaks away from an addiction, begins to acknowledge and separate yourself from a damaging life pattern and habit. I'm just telling you, give thanks for a new life. Sometimes it's not a big, massive, cataclysmic thing. Sometimes it's the baby steps where day by day, the spirit of God begins to form you anew. You start to break away from patterns of complaint and move the heart moves toward gratitude. You begin gradually to move away from a quick tamper that is destructive and the Holy Spirit begins to birth patience in you. Give thanks for new life. Give thanks for new life. Give thanks for the new life that God is creating in you even today. Second element of Passover, it was a harvest festival. It celebrated the new life. But Jeff, apart from a harvest thing, didn't like Passover look back on this like event in their history. Absolutely. Element number three had to do with collective memory. Element number three, collective memory. Now, there's something we showed last week, and it was that each of these major celebrations, each of these festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, had a harvest component, but also a what? Also a history component that is it was a harvest festival but it was also an opportunity to remember something in your sacred history so what was it exactly that passover remembered what was it that passover remembered Uh, fourth of july 4th of july remembers the 4th of July in 1776 when some very uh, courageous representatives from 13 English colonies signed a document declaring that they were now independent of English rule. It was a declaration of their independence from England. Uh, That's what 4th of July remembers. The signing of the Declaration of Independence from 1776. Christmas, Christmas remembers the birth of Jesus. Easter remembers the resurrection of Jesus. What did Passover remember? What historic event did Passover remember? Passover remembered your escape from Egypt, where you were enslaved for generations. Uh, Egypt, here, (coughs) excuse me, around the corner from Israel, generations of slavery. During a famine, the sons and daughters of Jacob had migrated south to Egypt in order to find food. They stayed there. After a while, they grew so populous, the Egyptians enslaved them as a slave group. It was hard, it was difficult, it was terrible, it was horrible, and it was long. As some guess, it much as long as 400 years. This group had lived in Egypt, much of that in slavery. Passover looked back on the very night that the Israelites were rescued from slavery in Egypt. Passover remembered that. So, if you're a Jew living in Israel in the first century and you travel to Jerusalem, this is the way that you would remember that long ago on that very night your people had been rescued. And it had to do with that picture of the temple up on the hill. Uh, That temple complex up on the hill. um, There was a day during the Passover festival where men would select a one-year-old lamb and men representing families, maybe a husband, maybe a brother, maybe a a, a dad, maybe your son, would lead or carry a one-year-old lamb up the hill to the top of the temple. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men at the same time, leaving houses, leaving streets, leaving alleys, merging into the major entrances of the temple, ended up being thousands of lambs being carried or led up the hill into the temple area. I want you to hear it. Not the bleating of a lamb, but the sound of hundreds, thousands of lambs being carried up the hill. What you are carrying up the hill is dinner, your dinner for that night. And so I know that we have children in the room and some people with queasy stomachs, so the lamb is taken up into the temple courtyard and it is dispatched. Cut the throat of the lamb. A priest is there. He has a jar a, a glass a goblet and he catches blood from that lamb in this in this cup and he passes it to a priest who passes it to another priest who passes it to another priest who passes it to another priest it's like a bucket brigade and it's passed all the way down to this uh altar where there was a flame burning, and at the base of the altar, the blood is poured there, and then a bucket brigade sending the glass, the jar, back to the place where the sacrifices were being made, and this was an assembly line. No sooner had your lamb bled out that they hung it on a hook, skinned it, cleaned it, and handed back to you, and this would only take minutes because of the hundreds of lambs they had to process, thousands of lambs they had to process in a very short number of hours. And so as other people are carrying their lambs up, you're carrying the lamb carcass down, and the aroma that must have filled the city, because grills are going on every rooftop in the city as people are then roasting these lambs. If you were, if you were not hungry before, you were starving now, as you just heard the aroma coming from all these grills with these lambs that were broiled and then you bring the lamb back to where your family is seated, and you had the Passover meal. Now, at this table, I only have three chairs. Their tables would have been much longer or a number of seating areas joined together, because one of the regulations was none of the lamb can be left over till tomorrow. You have to eat it all tonight. And you got How does a family of three eat an entire lamb? The idea is you can't. You get together with another family. You then invite some friends in. Some people have no place to go. And so a consequence of this, none of this can be left over tomorrow kept you from celebrating the Passover as an individual. It turned it into a community event where a number of smaller families would join together to do this together. A consequence was it turned into more of a community event. So you might have some 15, 18 people there to enjoy this lamb together. And someone would have the responsibility at the Passover dinner, the dad, a son, someone, to retell the story of what happened on that night years ago. And so in one way or another, the storyteller would say, we were slaves in Egypt. And it was long and it was hard and it was horrible and we were not free. And God sent a deliverer by the name of Moses who went to Pharaoh who said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, not gonna happen. And for the centuries of slavery we had suffered, God began to send his judgment on the Egyptians and Pharaoh's hardened heart and reluctance and unwillingness and stubbornness in letting us go. There was an infestation of frogs, frogs everywhere, frogs in bedrooms, frogs in kitchens. No one had seen anything like it before. An infestation of flies. Finally, Pharaoh, yes, you can go. And then he changes his mind and then hail falls and wipes out the crops and then locusts swarm in and devour what the hail didn't destroy plague after plague after plague of god's judgment and still Pharaoh hardened his heart and re- hardened his heart and refused to let's go finally plague number 10 the angel of death passes through the land of egypt and the firstborn son in every egyptian family dies But in the slave families, the Israelite families, through Moses, they were commanded to take a lamb, kill the lamb. That lamb was for dinner. But they were to take some of that blood from that lamb and take a bush called hyssop, dip it in the bowl, and wipe it on the sides of the door and at the top of their door. And that night, when the angel of death passed through the land the angel of death would skip their house. The angel of death would pass over their house. The angel of death would pass over their house. This meal, the Passover, remembered that a lamb took the place of your son. And the next day, the Egyptians exited us from Egypt. We were expelled. It wasn't just that we escaped. It's like God rescued us through the lamb that took our place. And so all the elements of the the meal, there were, in Jesus' day, uh, several times where wine would be uh, consumed uh, for various blessings. But there's also uh, bitter herbs at the table, And if you had a smaller child taste some of the bitter herbs and the smaller child goes, yuck. You go, yeah, that's to remember that our slavery was yuck. Our slavery was hard and our slavery was bitter and it wasn't good. And the bread was a very unique, special kind of bread. We call it unleavened bread. It's basically bread made without yeast. Because they left Egypt in such a hurry, there was no time for their bread to rise. It's like, make it quick, get it in the oven, have something to eat. You are going to be out of here soon. And so it's like generation after generation after generation of slavery, and then suddenly they're evicted from Egypt. And so they would have bitter herbs. They would have uh, bread made without yeast. And this is the way they would remember their rescuing God. This wasn't an event in their history. This was the event in their history. So year after year after year after year, they come to Jerusalem. They carry a lamb up the hill. The lamb is dispatched. The blood's poured on the uh, base of the altar. They come back down, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, and they retell the story because they needed to remember the story. It needed to be grafted into the collective memory of this people. It's element number three, collective memory. Element number four, I think, is the most important one for us. Element number four, I think is the most critical one for us to understand. Element number four has to do with the Passover lamb. Element number four, the Passover lamb. I'm going to describe a story that takes place in our Bible, in the life of Jesus. If you've been around church a bit, you'll have an advantage on picking up what story this is. There's a story where Jesus is heading into the city of Jerusalem. He's like on a donkey, and people along the road, they begin to take palm branches, and like wave palm branches, put coats in the road in front of him, put palm branches in front of him, and people begin to yell, uh, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes to the name of the Lord. Any you familiar with this story? Some of you have been around church at least a little bit. What day do we call this? It's called Something Sunday. What do we call this? We call this what? We call this Palm Sunday. And the event, we call it Palm Sunday because uh, that's going to happen, but the event is called the Triumphal Entry. I have a question. What are people doing along the road? Jesus is traveling into the city of Jerusalem, and people along the road begin to take palm, palm branches and begin to yell, Hosanna to the son of David. What are they doing out there? What are people doing along the road? What they are doing along the road is that pilgrims in the north are heading south because it's Passover week. Did you know that? Palm Sunday, Jesus riding into Jerusalem, the reason there's this parade of people The reason there's this huge bunch of people entering the city of Jerusalem with Jesus is because they are heading into Jerusalem for Passover week. It's festival week. Did you know that? The week that Jesus gets executed is during the Passover season. In the spring, during the Passover feast, during the Passover holiday. Many of Jesus' miracles were done up north in the region of Galilee. As Jesus is heading into Jerusalem, he is surrounded by his fan base. Furthermore, people would camp out in the orchards and gardens outside the city. When they hear the noise and they recognize Jesus, they join in the group. That's why there's this parade of people. That's why Jesus has this entourage as he heads into the city of Jerusalem. It's the pilgrims' entering Jerusalem for Passover feast. Now, that's on Sunday. What's he do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? He's here. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, he's in the courtyards of the temple. He's teaching. He's being interrogated. Two things are happening on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. His popularity is rocketing as people listen to him and see how wise what he says is. A second thing that's happening is animosity is hitting a boiling point where the religious leaders are going, this guy's gotta go and he's gotta go now. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a Sunday, the crucifixion is on a Friday. But after teaching in the temple courtyards, the same place he had been as a 12 year old, questioning the religious leaders and engaging in conversation, Thursday, Early Thursday, his disciples come to him with a question on Thursday. You know what the question was? The question was this. Where do you want us to go and make preparation for you to eat the the Passover? It's that day. It's time for that meal. His disciples come to him. where Where do you want us to go and get the meal ready? Now, the meal that Jesus shares with his disciples, we remember it like this. We call it the Last Supper. There's Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper. And yes, it is the Last Supper, but the meal that Jesus is eating is this meal. The meal that Jesus is eating with his disciples is that one day a year when you look back and say, on this very night, God rescued us On this very night, a lamb took our place. He's at that table and that meal with his disciples. And he flips the script. He takes bread without yeast, which was supposed to remember leaving Egypt in a rush. And he alters the meaning. Jesus takes this bread... He breaks it up, and this is what he says. He said, this is my body given for you, and do this And what? I do want you to remember, I want this to be absorbed into your collective memory, but now I want you to remember me. This represents... My body, which is going to be given for you. And then he takes the cup of wine, which was used for a number of reasons at the Passover meal. And this is what he does with a cup of wine. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He's saying, listen, it's not just long ago. There were Passover lambs and the blood went on the doorposts and on the sides of the door. So that the angel of death would pass you over. Uh, I want you to know that my blood is going to pour out of my body to rescue You, do you realize what Jesus is saying here? What Jesus is saying here is I am the Passover lamb. It's me. All of those centuries, all of those ceremonies, they were pointing to me where I would come and be the lamb to take your place. We need to remember that Jesus is our Passover lamb who came to take our place. When do you need to remember that? I need to remember from time to time that when Jesus came to take my place, he he came to pay off debts that weren't his. He came to pay off debts that were mine. By debts, I mean mean stuff I said. I mean mean stuff I did. He is my Passover lamb who came to take my place. By debts, I mean the good stuff we didn't do, the good stuff that was right in front of us, and we just kind of neglected it, procrastinated it, or flat out ignored it. He is the Passover lamb who came to take your place, who came to take my place. When do you need to remember that? I need to remember that when I'm feeling pretty good about myself. You know, God, you kind of deserve me. (laughs) And then I remember, dude, you were incapable of self-rescue. And God was merciful and loving and gracious. He sent Jesus as the Passover lamb to take your place. I need to remember that when I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And we need to remember that when we are feeling despicable. (laughs) If you ever feel like you're kind of a lost cause... (laughs) Passover lamb, Jesus came to take your place. I think we need to remember this when we're called upon to love somebody who really doesn't deserve it. (laughs) Remembering that Jesus, our Passover lamb, came for us when we didn't deserve it. In those moments where you feel lost, where you feel lost and you feel hopeless, in those moments when you feel unloved, in those moments, we need to recall, we need to remember that Jesus, the Passover lamb, to take our place, and this means you're infinitely treasured and you're infinitely loved. What I've been trying to say is this, in reflecting back on the Passover, is this that God invites you to the feast. something in our spirit should just go wow something should be in awe at the welcoming hand of the rescuing god and that we that we are invited to the feast and so gracious god in this season This holiday season, remind us of your goodness. Remind us of your grace. Remind us of your rescuing hand. Remind us that the story that you're telling is long and it's good. May we respond with hearts that respond to you for reaching out and down to us. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Amen.